On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking money, economics. Why are unemployment numbers up, but companies are saying they can't find people to fill their jobs? Hmm, we'll talk about it with Marvin Ryder. We're going to talk about why NASA is, this is for real, aiming a rocket at an asteroid millions of kilometers away to try and blow it up. Hmm. And we're going to talk about rivalries in sports. Are they overdone now? Are there too many of them? We'll talk about that too. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Marvin Ryder is with the DeGroote School of Business. We love having Marvin on. And I got to tell you, today, it's a fascinating story. It's a weird story. And I'm going to hope Marvin can explain this because it seems as though right now in the Canadian economy, we have high unemployment. Unemployment, something like 400,000 more people are unemployed compared to 2019. And yet businesses, a lot of them are reporting they can't find workers. They're, they're posting open positions. They can't fill them. Let me bring in Marvin Ryder to try and explain this. Marvin, thanks for doing this today, first of all. First, glad to be with you. And help me out here. Now, I know it's not the same as pure economics, but I thought supply and demand would even transfer over into this kind of thing. Yep. Why are we having such a hard time finding workers? Well, let me come at this a couple of ways if I can. First, uh, we're almost having this discussion a little early on Friday morning. On Friday morning, uh, Stats Canada is going to release the data for the month of September. Our most recent jobs data was for the month of August, and I, I can give you good news. We're actually within 150,000 people to get back to pre-COVID employment levels. So if we compare it to January, February of 2020, we're only about 150,000 jobs away. In the month of August, we added 90,000 jobs, and of those 90,000 jobs, about 70,000 were full-time positions. You love to hear that coming out of COVID. You want to, sure. you want to see that. Now, even if we're not quite back to full employment for the month of September, suppose we only had 70,000, we'd still be down 80. Why are people having this problem? And the problem is simply this, not all jobs are created equal. So when an employer says to you, I've posted a job, why aren't people employ, uh, aren't, why aren't people applying for it? I always say, well, what kind of a job is it? And the concern, of course, is that people are getting paid too much money to stay unemployed. Uh, well, that's not quite the case. So let me give you an example. I'm a right, restaurant. That's, that's the Serb defense. That's the Serb argument right now. That's the Serb argument. Just, and of yeah, course, okay. the Serb argument has fallen to $300. It was $500 a week. Now it's $300 a week. So the, the amount of support has come down. But here's a simple example. I'm a restaurant. I, I need somebody, but I don't need them for, for five shifts a week of eight hours a day. I only need them for two shifts or maybe three shifts. So I'm posting a job but it's really a part-time job. And even if I'm paying $15 an hour and you're working 16 hours, well, that's $240. I've got $300 on, on the uh, uh, employment insurance or the CERB part of the employment insurance. So as the worker, I'm saying, look, I'm not, I'm not going to leave that for $240. And by the way, we don't know if a fourth wave is going to close you up again. So why would I give up my certain thing for the others? Where companies can offer full-time employment, they are not having as much of a challenge. But I'll also say, you know, full-time employment at what rate of pay? And so some employers who are complaining about people not applying for jobs are also trying to offer them at maybe one of the lowest possible rates. Uh, the companies that are not having a problem recruiting are those who are doing a little better with their payment. So a good example is you're not hearing our good friends at Amazon, who are building this lovely new yeah. facility up on the mountain, having a problem recruiting people, but they also pay $17 an hour. What's interesting about what you just said is that the, the story is that we're hearing 
that many of the places that are struggling right now aren't able to stay open because they can't find workers. And then what you explain, well, then because they aren't staying open, the workers don't want to work the few days. And it seems like a cycle. If you had more workers, then they'd stay open. And if they stayed open, then more workers would want to work there. Well, it is is one of these vicious cycles. And, And Scott, both sides are acting correctly. In other words, if I'm a company coming out of COVID and I'm trying to reestablish myself, I am reluctant to offer full-time jobs because I don't know if I'm going to be shut down again. So if you're in the hospitality sector, the travel, the tourism sector, and you have been locked down for most of the last 18 months, you're feeling quite reluctant to offer full-time jobs at a good pay. Look, I'll just put my toe in the water. But then the employees, people say, oh, they don't want to work. Well, they do want to work, but they they want to work out of way that they can really support themselves and to give up a $300 SERB payment for a 240 payment uh, on the job. That doesn't make sense. So what we really need is for some companies to take more of a gamble here and saying, okay, I'm coming back and I'm going to offer a full-time job and just hope the best I can hope that we don't have another round of shutdowns. For what it's worth, COVID in Ontario looks quite differently than COVID in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Yes, we have cases in Ontario, but it doesn't seem to be at a level that we are headed towards a fourth lockdown, whereas in Alberta and Saskatchewan it's quite different. So this is the challenge, and if I'm in the government, the signals I send to these employers, as well as the signals I send to the workers, are very critical right now. You know, Are we on a path to declaring the pandemic over? Are we on a path that is going to see no more lockdowns? Boy, both sides would act quite differently, but they have been bitten with three rounds of lockdowns. And and I'm part of the problem here, too. I thought we'd only be doing these lockdowns for five or six months. Here it's been 18 months. Are we finally on that path? And until you hear that, both sides are, are opening opportunities, but very tentatively. I don't know how to ask this question without sounding somewhat elitist or, you know, high paid or whatever. And so forgive me for that. It's not meant that way, but... If all the, I understand that workers, some people don't want to go and work for minimum wage or for low, low wages. I get that. I certainly understand that. But if every business was to increase their pay by two or three or $4 an hour, would that not essentially wipe out the buying power of everyone? Because prices would then go up because the stores and the companies have to raise their prices to pay for all these employers so that ultimately you have a net gain of zero or would it really help those people? Well, I, I think it would. So you're absolutely right. You know, let's suppose I'm a coffee shop and I need some employees and they don't want to work for $15 an hour. So I, I have to offer them $20 an hour. That's a 33% premium. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your cup of coffee is going to go up 33% because that one worker over the course of an hour doles out a certain number of cups of coffee. Maybe I have to increase your cup of coffee 10 cents a cup or 20 cents a cup or maybe even 25 cents a cup. That would cause some inflationary pressure, and yes, that would eat into what you can buy with that additional money, but it wouldn't be a one-for-one move, especially at the low end. The only question would be, if I give that coffee shop worker a raise from $15 an hour to 20 would someone earning $50,000 a year suddenly say, well, I want a raise to $75,000 a year. The hope would be we could do it in the lower income categories, but not see it reflected in the upper income categories. Thus, the inflationary pressure would be lower. You you expressed an optimistic position uh, before yep. the break about the fact that things are going to look better. Let me just throw it out. What happens if we do have a situation, if it extends where 
these jobs can't be filled for whatever reason. And again, we're talking mostly about the lower skilled, lower end jobs. What if this continues to be a problem filling those jobs? So the reason why I'm optimistic is I don't think it will. We filled those jobs before COVID, and I'm sure people will, will take these jobs after COVID. Our problem is that we've got three sectors of our economy which have not come back. Most of the rest of them have, by the way. But it's tourism, hospitality, and travel that are, are still having problems coming back. Uh, and, and, but ultimately, they will come back. Ultimately, people will have that confidence to say, well, I've, I've had enough of sitting around. Now, in fairness, uh, the, the $300 payment a week that is being done, the, the new CERB or the lower CERB, is not supposed to last forever, and it is supposed to come to an end at some point here in October. There's a little debate on to the actual date, but at some point in October. It is fair to say that uh, Jagmeet Singh has suggested too early, too early, extend it, extend it, and I guess the question will be how much pressure Justin Trudeau feels to extend it. But if the feeling is, okay, look, the pandemic is winding down and we are going back and we're going back to the old EI type payments, you're not going to get this $300. It's going to go down even lower. At some point, people are going to say, well, if I'm only going to get, I'll just make up a number and say $175 a week. Those two or three shifts look pretty good. Maybe I'll get a couple of those jobs and go back. And so the sooner we can get past COVID, the sooner we can get back to this old normal, which hopefully will be the new normal, I think people will do this. But at the moment, remember, both sides are behaving correctly. The the company looking to do the hiring is reluctant to hire people on a full-time basis or to pay them a bigger wage because they're not sure what their fortunes are like. They've had a rough year and a half. And the people supplying labor are also acting correctly given the market conditions. But if you want to speed up this transition, cut the amount of support you're giving to those people. It will force some of these people back into the workforce. All right. I want to change because just for a couple of minutes that we have here to yep. one of the bizarre stories that I, I, I couldn't believe this was true when I first heard it, that people are proposing. It's from the States. Yeah. Uh, of course, the United States has debt problems and they want to raise the debt cap. They want to be able to borrow more money, but that's, you know, there are those who are pushing back against it because they already have so much debt. So someone has suggested that whether the mint in the States should print or mint forge, whatever, a $1 trillion coin, which would help them pass the debt limit. Now, the first thing you don't want to do is have that one fall out of your pant pocket, but how does just printing a bill, a trillion dollar coin solve anything theoretically? Right. So let me just first take you back to this concept of a debt ceiling. So this was approved more than 20 years ago as an attempt to force people to balance the budget, to force Congress and the Senate to balance the budget. If we limit the amount of money you can borrow, you will have to balance the budget. Well, in those 20 years that have passed, and I've run out of tracking the number of times, I think it's gone up 50 times, they've kept raising the debt ceiling. But it's always with a great amount of drama. You know, okay, folks, you may not have a job come Friday. We may may have to shut down government. And always it seems at the last moment, and in in a few cases, even a few days after the last moment, they finally come together and they find a way forward to raise the debt ceiling. But there's all this drama and, frankly, unnecessary turmoil even in the stock market. So this was the clever idea. The president of the United States can't automatically change the debt ceiling, and neither the House or the Congress can change the debt ceiling. So how do I make room in the debt business? 
Well, someone took a look at all the different rules and regulations and said, hmm, nothing would stop the U.S. Mint from uh, stamping out a $1 trillion coin made of platinum. And what you'd do, you'd walk it down the street, hand it to the Federal Reserve Board and said, please retire a trillion dollars of our debt in receipt of this coin. In fact, today, Scott, the talk is not to print one of these coins, but to mint maybe a half a dozen of these coins. Suddenly, your total debt, which in the United States right now is at about $26 trillion, you would take it down to 20 Hey, you're nowhere near the debt ceiling, and we can go back to business as usual. It would buy us some time. Now, how, how does this work? Well, of course, it is up to the Mint, which is run by the government, to determine what the value of anything is, whether it's a bill or a coin. Uh, would the Federal Reserve uh, accept this payment? The hope, again, would be yes to create this bargain. Well, hold on a minute. How, how, what does the Federal Reserve do with this coin? Well, they would add it to their asset base, and they would now say, I have an asset worth a trillion dollars, and thus, you know, their balance sheets would not be affected. The correct question for you to say was, well, would the coin be worth a trillion dollars? No, it would not have a trillion dollars of platinum in it. It would be like, you know, maybe uh, $200 worth of, of platinum in it. Um, and and I, what I would worry about this is, well, would everyone say, look, you're just playing a game here, and this might actually cause inflation, because if yes, suddenly the yes. assets on the books of the Federal Reserve Board are questionable. In other words, they're not really worth what they're saying they're worth. This could cause inflation. So, so again, sorry to keep going on this, about seven years ago, there was a person in the Congress who said we should close this loophole. There are a couple of laws that were proposed to close this loophole, to stop this action, to go back to the original intention of the debt ceiling. But so far, they've never voted for these things. So in theory, it exists. I think whatever president pulled the trigger on this, well, that would be the end of it. It would, it would easily be voted out. It would buy you this situation one time only, and then they would change the rules. Uh, you'd have to be, this is more of a Donald Trump kind of a move than a Joe Biden kind of a move. I see, and we got to run, but I always thought that when you dump more and more and more cash into the economy, that's one of the things that leads to inflation, which would seem that this would automatically cause it. But maybe that's a, uh, a pickup and, and answer number two for another day, because sadly we are... Uh, we are way out of time. Just on a yes or no answer, is that generally, though, not one, would, of the, one of the things? You're absolutely right. It, all right it would depend right. upon the amount. One trillion on 26 is not that bad. But boy, oh boy, if you just, you know, if the person who was carrying that dropped it accidentally and someone <laughs> walked behind and picked it up, boy, talk about your lucky day. Absolutely. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Glad to be with you. Let us take a break here on the Scott Radley Show as we ponder finding a trillion dollar coin on the side of the road. You know who would find that? Not me. Anybody but me. I would never have that kind of luck. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm a child of the 80s. Used to go to the video arcades. And sometimes there I would play the old, very rudimentary game. But we loved it back in the day. Asteroids. Remember that? Those of you old enough? You blast away at asteroids were flying. They want to do that for real now. NASA on November the 23rd is going to fire off a rocket with the express purpose of crashing into an asteroid. No word if Bruce Willis is going to be on this rocket like in the movie Armageddon. Nonetheless, it is, it is the idea here apparently is to test to see if in the event of a rogue asteroid hurtling towards Earth, we could 
stop it somehow. I want to bring in Jesse Rogerson, Dr. Jesse Rogerson, astrophysicist, assistant professor at York University, favorite on this show. Jesse, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? Well, I'm, I, I had to read this one about four times to believe <laughs> that this was not some sort of April Fool's thing. This is like crazy science fiction Hollywood stuff. It almost sounds like it, right? It's, a, it's an asteroid mission. They're flying out to an asteroid. The goal of the mission is to redirect the asteroid, sort of. Uh, it sounds like Bruce Willis. It sounds like they're going to go and like dig a hole or something and <laughs> explode it with a nuclear weapon. But it's pure on science, and it's cutting-edge science um, at that. This is like right on the edge of frontier of science, so it's a really cool mission. Okay, so I want to get to a few of those things about the science. Um, first of all, <clears throat> excuse me, how fast is does how fast do asteroids move typically? Or the range? Oh, well, it it depends. There's a, quite a range, but we're talking many many tens of kilometers per second through the, through the solar system. But it, and so that ends up being something like tens of thousands of kilometers an hour, right? So they're moving really fast. But it's not about their individual speed. It's about their their speed re- with respect to us, right? Because if we're moving in the same direction, then the, the the velocity difference between the two of us is small. If they're if we're moving if it's moving right at us, then it's, the velocity difference is very high, right? So it's but in in general, we're talking velocities like tens of thousands of kilometers an hour, and that's the real key here because something there most things that hit us are relatively small, but they light up in our sky and create these big, you know, shooting stars uh, and or boloids, and they're lighting up because they're moving so quick, right? And that's that's the danger, is the energy associated with the velocity of these things. And that's why we're scared of asteroids that might be able to hit us. Well, see, here's the thing. Uh, your title has the word physicist in your title, <laughs> astrophysicist. Mine does not. But one thing I've learned from, for example, baseball is that if a ball is moving really, really fast, if you're if you're hitting against a pitcher who's throwing 95, it takes less work on the part of the bat to redirect the ball into a different direction as opposed to a really slow-moving ball. You have to do all the work to make it go. So the fact that the asteroid is moving this fast is if you could make contact with it, is it actually going to take much pressure to move that off its course or will it easily then redirect because it's going so fast already? Well, here's the thing is that it's not about, um, it's not about how big of it or what's another way of saying this? You don't need to make a huge change. So in this, in this test, what the mission is actually going to do, is, it's called DART. It's going to fly off to a double asteroid system, which is an, uh, it's a large asteroid that's about 800 meters wide that has its own little tiny moon, a moonlet, an asteroid moon, um, that's about 150 meters in size. And what they're going to do is they're going to smash a tiny little spacecraft into that 150-meter moonlet and see if they can – and what they're going to do really is change the – the orbit of that small asteroid around the big asteroid by something like 1%. So we're talking a tiny, tiny difference because it's a tiny spacecraft smashing into um, a very large, in, in comparison, a very large object, right? So that 1%, though, being able to change the orbit of something by 1% is small but significant because if we can do that on a bigger scale, if we can do that, if we see look out into space and we see an asteroid coming at us, and we can get to it early enough, then we and we can change its orbit by one percent. That would be more than enough for it to miss Earth down the line, right? So it's not about big changes. You don't. You actually don't have to make a big change to the orbit. You, a, a small change made early enough would be enough to save us, basically. Mm-hmm. 
I've been doing this show now for, I don't know, eight years, nine years, something like that. Um, I want to tell you, you're the first person ever to talk about a moonlit on the show. So, (laughs) uh, okay. So speaking of moon, uh, I get, and again, I don't understand, I'm not smart enough to understand, but I get the concept of us trying to land on the moon. The moon is not a stationary object, but it's stationary enough for brilliant physicists and scientists to figure out how to get a rocket onto that particular place. But again, asteroids with the speed they're moving, is this something that can be done with a fair degree of accuracy or is there an element of good fortune in here if we can actually make contact? Oh, no, I think uh, the the interesting thing about the orbit of this this asteroid um, is that, or this double asteroid, I should say, is that it's sort of similar to Earth's orbit. So um, it gets, it, it's not quite the same. It's, a, it's an elliptical orbit around the sun and it gets pretty far out. But then it, when it comes closer to the sun, it matches up with our orbit pretty nicely. So when you, that makes it easier to get to than compared to other things like say Jupiter or Saturn or something like that. Uh, so relatively speaking in the solar system, it's a decent place to go fly to. The, and when it, when it matches up with it, and it, and it smashes into it, that's actually going to happen when it's really, really close to Earth. It's closest, it, this, the asteroid that they're doing this for, it's only going to be something like 10 or 15 million kilometers away from us when it makes the impact, which is actually pretty close uh, in terms of like, um, you know, space distances, right? So the, it's, all about the, it's all about the orbits because yes, they're moving quickly, but if the orbit is similar to our orbit, then it's not actually that big of a deal, right? It's just a small change to get there. All right. The big question of all this is, this is really cool. This is really amazing that we might be able to do this. I'm sure it'll make fantastic visuals if we can ever somehow get a picture somehow, which we probably won't. Nonetheless, is this something we really should be worrying about? I mean, like what are the, what's the likelihood that we're ever in direct contact or direct line of fire from an asteroid? That is a wonderful question. How dangerous is space? How, how likely is it that we're going to get hit by something big? Well, first of all, we get hit all the time, but we get hit by little things, right? So at what size does something get really dangerous? Uh, if you remember, do you remember back in 2013, there was an object, uh, an asteroid that came from space, a meteoroid that broke up over top of a, a Russian city called Chelyabinsk? Do you remember that? I, I do vaguely remember that. So that object was about... Uh, the size of a bus or an airplane, roughly speaking. And it burst in the air over top of the city. It like destroyed windows and knocked doors off hinges and stuff. And it was like pretty crazy, but nobody got um, uh, seriously injured from it. But that size of an object is relatively safe. The The interesting thing is when you get to like 100 meters or more, that's when it starts getting really dangerous. And we, the the big things in the solar system, things that are 100 meters or bigger, are the easier things to find. So if you're asking me how dangerous is space, we have a pretty good handle on where all the big things are. That doesn't mean we know where every single thing is because there's always going to be um, a vanishingly small number of things that we, we haven't detected yet. But in terms of like the big things that, are, that possibly could hit us, uh, we know where they all are. And NASA and other agencies around the world keep a running list of all the asteroids that we think might hit us in the future. And there's like a handful of them, like roughly like 20 to 30 that are, that top the list with the most, that are considered the most dangerous. Now, how dangerous is that? The ones that are highest on the list have an almost 0% chance of hitting us. 
So we shouldn't be worried in the short term. We shouldn't be worried in the short term. In the next hundred years, it's very unlikely we're going to get hit by anything that's going to hurt us in any way. The reason you do this mission is because the further out into the future you predict, like where these asteroids are or where there may be asteroids we don't know where they are, the further out into time you predict, the more uncertain your predictions get. And then as a result, at some point we get to, we get to a, a time frame in the future where we're not really good at predicting anymore. And we need to be able to, we need to, be able to have a, a backup plan for asteroids that we don't know exist yet and for asteroids that we do know exist, but we don't know their orbits very well. And you know, I, I, I suppose that uh, if you're the person who gets hit by an ass, a little piece of something that falls from the sky at 10,000 kilometers an hour, and it's the size of a nickel <laughs> space is probably pretty dangerous for you. Well, you know, that's actually, we got, we got yeah, to run, unfortunately, unlikely, though. <laughs> a very, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm not walking down the street wearing a helmet worried about it. Let's put it that <laughs> way. Uh, Dr. Jesse Rogerson, we always love having you. Thanks for taking time today. No worries. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in our good friend here who, uh, boy, I got to tell you, I see this guy more on TV these days. Every time I turn on a Buffalo Bills game, there is the third most famous Foxcroft's face right in the middle of my TV set. Steve Foxcroft, how are you, my friend? I'm great. I love that. The third most famous Foxcroft. Can, you know? I, can I tell you a story about famous Foxcroft number one? Sure. So dad, Ron Foxcroft and I split the rap. So the bills aside, we love the bills. We go down there, but dad and I split the games for the Raptors. We do that courtside thing, the replay stuff and all that. So we're at the table. Think, yeah, you're, you're, not, games. you're not fans. You're, you're working. Yeah, we're working. Yeah, okay. We're right yeah, at yeah. the scorers table when we're working. So um, we split the games. So this year, and of course it's dad, right? He's older. He's been around forever. He should get first pick always. So I allow him first pick. So it wasn't until a week ago when I figured out this year, there's a lot of conflict between tie cats and Raptor games. And I also figured out that last Saturday's game was probably the last tie cat game. I'm going to be able to attend because I'm doing all the Raptor games when those conflicts happen. So he can enjoy his lifelong love going to tie cat games. So I said to him, I go, hey, I know what's up, right? I know what, I'm on to you here. And he just looks at me and he goes, Dems to breaks. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Dems to breaks, Scott. Dems to breaks, yeah. It, uh, it reminds me of that old Mel Brooks movie, The History of the World Part 1, that came out in about 1980, where it was a, you know, it was a slightly raunchy scene, but at the end of it, Mel Brooks, he turned, it was in the French Revolution time, and he looks at the camera and goes, it's good to be the king. See, there you go. It's, it's, it's good to be the king. You can do what you want. to be the king. So he gets to go to the, and, and look at the game on Monday, too. First of all, it's Thanksgiving, and it's the Argos, right? And I can't be there because I have a Raptor game. Well, let me ask you, okay, there's two things I want to get to uh, here, and let's start with the, they both involve sort of the Ticats and the Argos, and we'll start with this one. Last night, you mentioned Monday with the, them playing again. Last night, the Yankees and the Red Sox were on in the, in the wild card game, and look, everybody likes a good rivalry, but is there a point in certain rivalries where you hit a point where you say, you know, I, I, I'm, it was fantastic once upon a time, but 
I'm actually kind of bored of the same two teams playing all the time. I, I got to tell you, I am absolutely bored to death watching the Yankees and the Red Sox now because the American TV networks have made such a stink about it for so long. They have literally squeezed to me, squeezed all the juice out of this thing. I couldn't care less about another Yankees Red Sox game. Right, and there was a time when it was appointment television, and yes. I think they have they have overdone it. And I think it's partly because the rights are shared among so many people, so they all want their Yankees Red Sox games. So they're on they're jammed down our throat way too much, and and I think some of it. So there's there's a few things there. It has first of all, it's personal, right? You have to be personal. You have to have a rooting interest, and I also think the teams have to be somewhat the same caliber or going through the same, like they either got to be good at the same time or bad at the same time. Uh, yeah, that, that for sure helps. I mean, look last year, the fact that the Canadians and the Leafs, but see the Canadians and the Leafs in the playoffs to me was a perfect example. You can have a rivalry, but you haven't killed it by overexposure. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I, and I wonder almost, and I know that this is going to be seen as sacrilege to some people. And this is going back to what you started at, the Ticats play the Argos four times this year in a 14-game schedule. They play them more, more than a quarter, roughly, yeah, more than a quarter of their games. And I just wonder if that's almost too much. Is, is it possible for it to be too much? It's, it's getting close, but I go back right now to I think the games are going to be competitive because the teams seem to be at the same level, and it still is personal to me, right? So I haven't... and. Two of the games, like our home games, are on holidays. So that makes it, that amps it up for me too, right? We had it on Labor Day. Now we have it on Thanksgiving Monday. So that kind of amps it up for me a little bit. But it's it's on the edge. It's on the edge. And I wanted to go down to the Argo, uh, when the Ticats went down to the Argos, but it was tough to get tickets. Like, because of course they're only selling so many, right? And it was tough to get a ticket to go to that game. So, I understand what you're saying, some of it. And there's some old rivalry, like Michigan-Ohio State football. Like, Ohio State has just been cleaning their clock recently in the Jim Harbaugh era, era, sorry. And I think it loses its luster that way. That's true, but also they do it once a year. Mm -hmm. And so that one game, and now I'm not saying the Argos and Ticats with this league, you can't just play once a year. But boy, if you had a one-time, one-game-a-year Labor Day day-only matchup, see, I, I, I just sometimes too much of a good thing. I'm not, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not hating on the CFL or the Argos or the Ticats. I think it's a great rivalry, and I think it's fantastic when they play. I just, you know, outdoor games for me, it's not a rivalry. The NHL has killed the outdoor game for me by and large by just overexposure. Yeah, and, I agree. I we have one coming up here which should be dynamite. I'm not there yet in terms of must watch, must go, like go out of my mind to get tickets and make sure we're there. And I'm because it's just an outdoor game that I've we've seen it so many times now. Yeah, and pay any amount of money for. Once upon a right. time, you know, once upon a time, you would have paid any amount and you would have sat in the freezing cold. I mean, those people who in that very first one, Montreal and Edmonton and Edmonton, when it was like five trillion below zero, it was like the that that planet in Star Wars where they had to ride those crazy creatures in the snow. I mean, that's how cold it was in Edmonton. And yet everybody loved too it. too cold for the ice, right? Like yeah. The ice yeah. was cracking. Anyway, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for some new 
rivalries. I really, and I'm, again, I'm not even talking necessarily about the Ticats and Argos, but mm-hmm. you know, if, if I, I'm ready for the Jays and, and Tigers to get to be hating each other again or something like back in the old days, just something fresh, something you know, fresh. It's interesting too, that some circulate through. So let's get back to the bills where I've been there for 30 years on the sideline and their rivals have changed over the years. When I first started, it was Miami, the big rival. It was Jim Kelly, Dan Marino, and then it slowly went to New England for the last little while. And now I don't really know who it is. It's still, you know, we like to beat up on New England, but it's almost like you could say it might be Kansas City or something. I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. Who they play this week, and they played in the playoffs last year, and they're both really good. Good young quarterbacks who are about the same age. Yeah, you know what? That's that's not a crazy that's not a crazy suggestion at all. But do the do the fans hate each other yet too? Right? Like, remember in the old days at Iverwind Stadium when the Argo fans would come in, and it was it was touch and go, right? Like, like I don't think Bills fans and KC fans get going with one another too much because it's it's there's geography there that makes it difficult. There is they don't play all the time too, unless lately because it's been in the playoffs because they've both been good. But let me ask you this one: Who would be over the years the Raptors' rival? Um, LeBron. That's whoever, whoever LeBron is on, that would be the rival. That's what I would say, because they really haven't got a natural rival, you know, like it's been sort of through the years, maybe the Knicks early on, maybe the Sixers a little bit, the Pistons because of geography, like you just mentioned the Jays and Tigers. Wouldn't that be great again? Like that, that's just great. And, uh, so I was thinking of the Raptors and I'm going, they don't really have a true rival that you just get up for no. and put it on your schedule. That's a game I got to go to. No, and for the Jays, it's funny because the, the rival right now, I think the team that probably Jays fans hate the most, if you had to go to less, would be the Texas Rangers. Right, and, right. and yet that all stems from stuff that happened five years ago. Like there's nothing recent in that. No. But it's and all... In fact, it, Odur is with the Yankees now, isn't he? Yep, yep, mm-hmm. he is. So that kind of... That kind of took away that hatred because it was, it was a lot of it was pointed at Odor. And I believe, I could be corrected on this one, but I believe the game on the last game of the season that the Yankees won at the last at bat to knock the Jays out of the playoffs, the guy who scored the winning run was Odor. Yeah, so I think now with right. the Yankees, just finding yeah. ways to torment them. Anyway, <laughs> uh, back to the yeah. Ticats for a minute. You, we're talking about not rivalries anymore, but well, maybe a rivalry between. Dane Evans and Jeremiah Mazzoli, is this even a, is this even a discussion anymore? Or did Jeremiah Mazzoli, he had the first couple of games of the year, they lost against good teams, mind you, but they lost. Uh, Evans comes in, wins games, gets hurt. Mazzoli comes back from an injury, loses. Is there any question at all that now it's Dane Evans' team as the quarterback when he's healthy? If I'm Coach O, there is no question. So I'm like, and I was like that at the start of the season too. So now with Masoli, I will say this, in the last couple of years, because of his injury and the pandemic, he's only played really about four or five games, right? But at the end of the day, I think Evans is just, uh, you could make a case for him. He's not played very many games either, and his win percentage is through the roof. So I just think, for me, Dane Evans is my guy. Ultimately, is it not? all about, I don't care how you do it. 
if you win, you're the guy for us. And Dane Evans has done nothing but win. Right. And Jeremiah Masoli, who is a good guy, he is he's a quality human being. He's a good quarterback, but for whatever reason, lately hasn't been winning. And that you know that seems to me to be the bottom line on this thing. You got you just go with the guy who wins, no matter how it happens. Does uh, here's another thought. Does Tommy Condell, the offensive coordinator, does he have two different game plans or does he shift his game plan around based on who is starting in terms of uh, Masoli or Evans? Or is it kind of the, the playbook similar for both? That that would be a great question to ask him, I think. It would. And if, and, and if it is a playbook for both, does it lean more towards the strengths of one over the other of Evans over Masoli so that Masoli is being handcuffed by this and it's not really his fault. It's right. a great question. It's a fantastic yeah, like, question, but, but as long that I think the issue remains though, as long as Condell is your offensive coordinator, even if that exists, if Evans is winning with whatever the playbook is, you got to go with Evans. Absolutely. How about the last two scoring plays of the regulation the other day in the Montreal Alouettes uh, tie cat game? Like, you won't see two crazier plays on third and 20, and they somehow scored a touchdown. This is Montreal. And then when we line up for the 56-yard field goal, I didn't think it would reach the 10-yard line. So the last two scoring plays of regulation, like, bitter about the loss, right? But talk about entertainment. And then for the CFL fans – you flip on the next game, Saskatchewan and Calgary, and Saskatchewan does three onside kicks in a row at the end of the game, and they have to do them consecutively because there's a penalty here. Uh, Calgary calls a timeout right before the kick on the third. And then the third one, they, they fooled everybody in North America by dribbling the ball instead of doing what they did the first two times. That, it was great entertainment for the CFL last weekend. I was so amazed that that 56 yard field goal went through not only because of how the distance and the wind and everything, but every time I think of a kicker now kicking into the wind, I think of, I can't even remember who it was now who was kicking for the Ticats at the time with the year they played in Guelph. And there was a game where it was just howling wind and storming. And it was like a 30 yard field goal and he belted it into the wind. But the gust was so strong that if you watch from the side, it goes up as a normal parabola. And then, stops and drops straight down about yeah. five yards before the goalpost. Like it, the, the wind literally like put the hand out and said, no, you're not going through. Yeah. And anytime you can pick, kick it through the wind now at any kind of distance, boy, that's impressive. Yeah. I was super impressed by that. It's so exciting. And really a lot of fans have left too. They missed out on a great finish to a game. And unfortunately for us, we fumble and they come in and kick a field goal to win and all that. But you know, the CFL East this year, it's going to be a toss-up, right? Like, coming in, I think we all kind of handed Hamilton the Grey Cup berth in our hometown. Well, we we might not even get the Eastern final unless we get our act together. Let me say, and you're right, you're, you're right. It still is very much up in the air, but let me go back, well, with the time we have left to the thing you just said, though, about fans leaving. How many times, not even CFL, just in general, how many times... Do we hear about people who have left and then they miss something before they realize, just don't leave. You've paid for your ticket. You've paid for your ticket. I, we were watching, 
months ago, they replayed that 30 for 30 series um, about the four falls of Buffalo, the Super Bowl teams back in the 90s, and the time they came back against Houston in the playoffs from 35-3 down or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And all the people who had left and were in their cars and now try to get back into the stadium. The 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 um, now no one was leaving at the Super Bowl, but the uh, New England Patriots against Atlanta the other right. year when when they came, just never leave. You've paid yeah. for your tickets. Stick around. Something crazy might happen, and occasionally it does. The like last week for the CFL, they could use the expression "We'll sell you the whole seat, but you only need the edge of it." Right. Like, exactly. That was and that. Remember that comeback. The comeback game too was Frank Reich. It wasn't even uh, Jim Kelly in. No, Kelly was injured. Who was the quarterback? Kelly was injured. But I mean, how many times have we seen rallies or last last second goals or whatever? I just I've never understood. I mean, uh, okay, if you if you get a text that your wife has gone into labor, sure, you know, go. But otherwise, (laughs) what's an extra five or ten minutes? Stick around. You might see something amazing. Uh I got to ask you this. It's happened to me. Now, I've gone to Blue Jay games for decades, right? It's measured in decades, not just a few years. And for the younger viewers, yes, it's decades. So have you ever, Scott Radley, have you ever left a Blue Jay game, got home, and watched the end of it on TV because it's gone like into 17 innings, extra innings or something? Never. I, 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 I literally, I don't think that I've ever left a sporting event early. Some Now, sometimes the closest I've come is because I also work covering sporting events at times. There will be times I'll leave the press box to go down to the dressing room area and I'll miss something because I'm en route down there and all of a sudden right. you hear this roar. But I don't think I've ever, that I can think of, left a sporting event early yeah, because I'm, something could I'm happen. Close. I'm close. I've, I go to a lot of Buffalo Sabre games. I tend to position myself, though, in the end zone, ready to bolt out the door some nights. And that's because it is a work night. And I do got to get, because we talked about my dad off the top, right? Like, he doesn't allow us to miss a second of work. And so we can't be out late going to going to anything. We got to be in at work the next day. So I've done that, but rarely do I leave. But I've had the experience like you where... Uh, in Buffalo, once I was up doing the clock, right? And they took us down or something. There was something where I was in the bowels of the stadium and then something happened and you're kind of wondering what's going on. You may have come up with the one example. If it's the Buffalo Sabres, you can leave early. <laughs> come on! Because <laughs> they're not coming back ever. <laughs> I will say we gotta... We're coming to Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, I got it. We got to run, but I'll tell you a funny story. And it's it's not funny to the guy who was involved, but um, probably 20 years ago, I wrote this story. There was a professor at Niagara College who, as a young man, as a 19 or 20-year-old, went to Russia in 1972 for the Canada-Russia series. And it's a long story that I won't bore you with all the details, but he had to leave game eight, the final game of that thing early, because the KGB official, who was his guardian and tour guide and whatever, forced them to leave. And he was opening the door to leave the Lushniki Sports Palace. And he heard the roar behind him and realized, I just probably missed the greatest thing ever. As Henderson took a wild stab at it and missed, he's like exactly. leaving. Unreal. Exactly. Can well, you imagine? I hope the Thai Cats make the Eastern final. I hope there's not a Raptor game, and then I can go and dems the breaks. You know what? If they if there is, tell your dad. Oh, I got a tummy ache. You have to cover for me, and then sneak <laughs> yeah. over to the Thai Cats. Grab the tickets and go. It.
I'll Steve Foxcroft. <laughs> Good. Thanks for including me. Always appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Okay. Talk soon. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.